Revelation 7 says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Did I say that correct? Israel. Israel. Does say that. The children of Israel, in case we missed it, were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Sibian, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And Father, we pause to ask just for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit to understand the word of God and to hear the voice of what your spirit would say to us through this portion of your word. Lord, please speak by your spirit now through what you've spoken in your written word. We ask expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes I think there's great value to just pause and ponder the mighty power of God. That is God's complete authority over all things, God's ability to do absolutely anything that he wills. And here in our passage this morning, we see that displayed in this next chapter in Revelation. We see the mighty power of God displayed in things like God directing angelic beings, God overruling creation and nature according to his plans and purposes, God controlling the exact timing that things happen and not before his timing would permit or allow. We see God's mighty power orchestrating good purposes for people, being involved in the lives of individuals. We see the mighty power of God preserving and actually protecting people from severe harm and ruin and keeping them safe in preservation and even intervening to transform lives and to save souls. If you notice with me as the chapter opens, chapter 7, verse 1, look with me in our text at those first two words. It says, after these 
things. After these things, the question should be asked, what things? Well, at this point, we know, by way of backdrop, we're now at the end of the historical church age. We know at this point in time, the church has been removed, drawn safely up into heaven by the Lord. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the church assembled there in glorified form, worshiping around <clears throat> the throne of God, giving God glory there for their redemption. And then in chapter 6, we saw the Lord Jesus, the eternal Lamb of God, who had provided salvation to make it available for all the world, that Jesus began to open the first of the six of these seven seals on this eternal scroll, the title deed to the earth, which began a seven-year period of what we refer to as the tribulation happening down upon the earth. And as Jesus began to open those seals, the tribulation period is now initiated, and that seven-year period of tribulation yet to come is a set time period where God not only uniquely will work among the nation of Israel during that seven-year period, it's often called the 70th week of Daniel because there's this one seven-year period left from Daniel chapter 9 that God has prescribed particularly for his chosen people, the nation of Israel, to do specific things with them nationally. But it predominantly is a time period when, as we've been seeing, the just wrath of the Lord is being righteously poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world still left behind on the planet to bring about proper punishment for mankind's rejection of Christ and God's offer of salvation and for their sin and evil and their rebellion against God. And they are now enduring this great day of his wrath upon the earth at this time for seven years where his judgments are being poured out. We saw together in chapter 6 sort of, we might say, a summarization generally of the events, some of them will be happening on the earth during this time period. We saw the rise of the Antichrist, this world dictator who will come on the scene to deceive initially by peace and will rally the world together in a global government with a global economy and a global uh, one world religion to try and offer peace on the world in the midst of the chaos, who then will ultimately satanically be inspired to rule like a harsh dictator. We saw global outbreaks all over the earth of various different things. We saw the barbaric violence and the killing and the bloodshed on the earth at that time as God, it says, removes peace from among mankind and he pulls back the restraining force and men release their, their full barbaric cruelty against one another, murdering and killing. We saw that it will bring about economic collapse which will lead to shortages of food and great starvation on the earth, severe pandemics of disease and global illness, cataclysmic events happening in nature, a great earthquake, as well as it seems something like an asteroid shower falling down severely upon the earth, resulting in, as we saw, remember, 25% of the earth's population left on the planet at that time will be killed as the result of those initial events. The one other thing that we saw, which connects to our chapter this morning in Revelation chapter six, as those first seals were being opened, that in the midst of all that chaos and all the severity and the judgments being poured out on the earth during the tribulation, mercifully, God is still allowing some souls to still be saved. That in the midst of all those things, during this last period, even though it's the historic final judgment of God of those left behind as human beings on the earth, even in the midst of that, God mercifully is still, as people are humbled by those events, as some are able to see beyond the global deception at that time, people at that time still being saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, as we've seen and will talk about and have already seen they will, as a result of getting saved and trying to live for Christ and believe in him, more than likely most of them have to be bravely killed for their faith in Christ. That as the result of receiving Jesus Christ and faithfully following him, most of them will have to give up their lives in death because of what's happening on the planet at that time. Now, chapter 7 gives to us, we'll see some insight as to how some of these people ended up getting saved. 
it reveals to us some of those details. Chapter 7, if we could say it this way, is sort of like a parenthetical chapter. It's like a pause before the seventh seal will now be opened and gives us a brief reprieve of some of the hard things that we're looking at, and it fills in some additional details. It's almost in chapter 7, we sort of kind of rewind a little bit and zoom in the lens from telescopic to microscopic, and we see some of the actual details of likely what was happening during the events described in chapter 6. And it gives to us some of the insight a little bit more. And we'll find this root, uh, routine pattern in our study the rest of the way through the book of Revelation, where we at first get broad details generally of events that are happening. And then it's like there's, a, there's sort of a partial rewind or a zoom in. And then we get some extra filler details and we get some additional insights regarding more specific events happening within those broad events. So we're not always just going forward chronologically. Sometimes we go forward, we get some description of events, and then we zoom back in. As a result, we get some deeper details, and that's what chapter 7 gives to us now, some of these details of how these people during the tribulation, who we saw some of them in chapter 6, are actually getting saved and how this was coming to pass. Look with me at verse 1. So after these things, I saw, John says now, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So notice here, we see God's mighty power being exercised particularly through the work of his angelic creatures that he created, and they're now executing what God once performed on the earth. Now, thus far in our study in Revelation, we've seen angels, these eternal spiritual beings that God created as a part of his creation, and thus far we've seen them present at God's throne, participating in the worship around God's throne, even to some degree kind of facilitating and help leading some of the worship around God's throne, giving praise to him in heaven. Now we begin to see here in chapter 7, the angels engaged in performing duties and certain tasks that God has assigned them to go out and to accomplish. Psalm 104, as well as Hebrews chapter 1, tell us that the angels are there referred to as ministers sent forth to accomplish God's works and God's purposes on the earth. And here we see that very thing happening. Angels going forth, sometimes they're accomplishing things on earth, sometimes among the spiritual realm. And as we study from Old Testament to New Testament, you find angels periodically doing exactly that, performing assigned tasks, accomplishing things that God wants done on his behalf. They are his agents operating with God's divine power that's been entrusted to them, exercising things that God wants done, fulfilling things on God's behalf, orchestrating things that God wants to transpire. And here we see them in verse one now, exercising God's mighty power over creation, over nature here, actually restraining the wind. It tells us here in verse one that these four different angels were standing at the four corners of the earth. The picture there is the four compass points, as we might say, north and south and east and west. And you have these four angels there, and what were they going to do? Well, the instruction was that they were going to be holding the four winds coming from the different directions of the earth, so that, verse 1, the wind should not blow on the earth, the sea, nor on any tree. So these four angels, their assignment is they would actually, it says here, withhold the wind. They were going to restrain any wind from blowing from any direction on the globe. There would be no wind transpiring. Now, that would be not only just hot and stagnant and very miserable, depending upon where you're located all the more, but it would also cause various other problems to happen on the earth. It would disrupt much of the normal function of nature and how it operates on the globe. It would severely affect the hydraulic cycle and other things that make it habitable to live on this earth. The wind is necessary as a part of God's overall plan for how nature and creation operates. 
and to shut off the wind would cause very unpleasant and horrible problems and it would harm the earth. It would harm the habitation of being able to live on the earth in the way humanity had up to that time. So basically what we see is in that time, there's going to come a time when God's going to basically shut down nature's engine. God's going to turn off the power plant of the wind that was operating on the earth and make it shut off by restraining it from these angels. And it was going to cause very difficult, harmful conditions on humanity that God needed to orchestrate to further fulfill his purposes. Now, what I want you to take notice of as we go on, watch verse two and three, what happens first, it says, then I saw another angel ascending from the east. This is a, a completely different angel now, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to those four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, that is by restraining and stopping the wind, saying, verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till, circle that, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. So before those four angels could restrain the wind, which would bring harm all over the globe as the result of that, notice God first had another plan that he wanted to accomplish first. There was something that God wanted done first before these other angels would restrain the wind. And that was, as we see here, this setting apart, this protective action of these human servants that they would be preserved and sealed supernaturally by God because God wanted to work through them during his time period. And here we see God's mighty power displayed in that notice things do not happen until God permits them. To happen. That this process of restraining the wind, which God also said was going to come to pass, notice this other angel told those four angels, this is your assignment. But he said, you cannot fulfill that assignment until I first accomplish this other thing that God once done, which is to seal these servants of the living God with this supernatural seal in their lives. Notice their assignment was not able to be accomplished, nor would it be accomplished. These events would not happen until God first did another thing, which shows us very beautifully that God wanted something to be accomplished first, then, and only then would he permit something else to come to pass afterwards. So God was not just controlling what happens he was also completely controlling exactly when it happened. And God would not allow this to happen until God accomplished this first. And how wonderful to see this reality of God's power that by his authority, God not only determines what happens, but he also determines what happens first and he determines what sequential order things happen in because he's in control of all things. And he's even in the control of the timetable and the timing of all things. And God will not at times permit one thing to happen until he permits something else to happen because God has purposes in all that he does. And it's a good reminder to us by way of application that God's not only interested in what happens. God's also interested in when things happen and the order that things happen. And that we should pay attention to that and realize that we should not try and force one thing to happen until something else happens. God's not interested in us moving on to phase two until we've done phase one. Or God may not be interested in us moving on to a next step until God accomplishes maybe step one and two and three. And that step that we wanted next, maybe that's actually step four. And because God is wise and God is loving and God has plans and purposes, God controls when things happen. And he says through this angel, listen, do not do that until this is done first. And sometimes God may say to us, look, I don't want this to happen or do not do this until, and you can fill in the blank. Now, what were they to do first? What was the thing God wanted done first? Well, we read in verses two and three here, that God wanted something taken care of before the wind was restrained. And that says this angel who has the seal of the living God was to supernaturally somehow deposit or put that seal upon the heads of these servants. And of course, the picture here given to us 
is God supernaturally sealing his servants. And the picture here is for ownership, for identity, as well as for preservation. In the ancient culture, a wax seal was often used as a mark to identify goods that you had purchased. So when someone would purchase goods and they would be shipped from this location or another location, they would typically put a wax seal on something. There was usually some type of a, a signet ring or like an you know, a, a identity ring, and it would be pushed into the wax seal so that no one would tamper with those goods. You did not break an ownership seal on someone's goods. And the purpose of the wax seal, whether it was on a scroll or on goods or a box or something that was purchased of supplies, was to ensure protection, to guarantee it would not be tampered with, that no one could break that seal, it could not be defiled, and it was a clear mark, these goods belong to this owner. This is his property, he has total ownership, and he has complete preservation and protection, and that seal would ensure identity, ownership, and preservation until the delivery reached the location of where it was supposed to go. Of course, this imagery is used in the New Testament as one of the aspects, not all, but one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of God's people as Christians. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that God has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, as well as Ephesians 4, speak of the same, that at salvation, when we believed in Christ, it says we were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That is for the day when God's redemptive process is completed and that is when God's cargo, when God's ownership, when God's property, you and I are safely delivered from the earth into the eternal dimension. And until that day, one of the reasons among many, many, one of the reasons God's given us his own spirit, a part of himself to dwell within us, it says, is to seal our lives to guarantee the completion of God's redemption process to deliver us safely into glory and so that no one can tamper with, no one can disrupt because we've been sealed by God's spirit supernaturally. And what a wonderful thing of security that is. You know, that's why I don't believe this is ludicrous, an idea that a Christian could be demon-possessed. You really think that the devil has the ability to break God's seal, God's power? That's insanity. Nor does God timeshare. God dwells inside of you by his spirit, the very presence of God himself, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the living God dwells inside of you. You've been sealed by the spirit. Do you think when God's presence is dwelling within you, if you're truly born again of the spirit, that a demon or the devil is going to tell God, could you move out of his soul? I'd like to occupy it. I mean, this is insanity. I think a demon can harass us. We can be oppressed by the enemy. I believe an unconverted person who's not born again and sealed with the Spirit then has a vacancy of demonic possession, which we do see that in the Word of God. But a Christian has been sealed with a guarantee and the power and the preservation of the Spirit of God. And no doubt here as we see this seal of the living God being put upon these servants in that day in the tribulation it's clearly a depiction of people not only being saved and sealed by the work of the Spirit, but also, as we can tell in the context, it also seems this seal placed upon them, put upon their heads, is a unique in some way divine preservation that God puts upon their lives for this period. That this is a part of a way whereby God protects and shields them from physical harm as they carry out their ministry in a very dangerous time in the midst of the tribulation period, that they would need this additional protection as the men now are set apart, we'll see, as sort of mighty evangelists to share the gospel with great power, to be used by God to speak the gospel and to lead many souls to Christ in the midst of this horrific tribulation environment, that this is God's way of shielding and keeping them safe to accomplish their ministry even during very extremely dangerous times, times when it was incredibly unsafe and very life-threatening upon the earth. And look, it's a reminder to us that God's power 
can divinely protect and preserve people, that God's mighty power can shield his people even in very, very dangerous situations. If God has purposes for his servants to fulfill in accordance with his will, he can miraculously shield his people and keep them safe. He can miraculously protect them and guard them, not only just by angelic protection, but by the seal and protection of his spirit and his divine protection that his plan and purpose can be carried out. If the Lord directs you to do something and it is his will and you are in the center of his will, you are safe. If God has directed you to do that as God was directing them to do this, it did not matter. Listen, think of how many people as you know, missionaries have followed the true calling of God and gone to very dangerous, very precarious, very difficult situations, and God miraculously shields them and protects them and lets them share the gospel and minister, and, and if they're fulfilling his purpose, until the day that it is the last day, because all of our days are written in God's book, the Bible says. Until their last day comes, they're technically, you might say, indestructible until that day because God's shielding them and God's protecting them. And I think it's very important that we never lose sight of that reality as Christians because sometimes we may find ourselves wrestling with fear and, and I believe God's told me to do this or God's told me to do that. And, and if we genuinely believe that, then we have to also genuinely believe that God can shield us. God can protect us. And that God is able to take care of us. You know, it is a great tragedy. I'm preaching to the choir to some degree. Not that this applies technically because you're sitting here. But there are people this morning, I assure you, that are still sitting in their pajamas, live streaming church services, because they're still afraid something will happen to them if they go around people. Listen, I'm not meaning to be unsensitive. Someone genuinely has a compromised immune system. There are legitimate situations where I understand to a degree, but there are also lots of people who are just by a spirit of fear using an excuse to disconnect from their Christian calling to live a proper Christian life to assemble together with God's people because they're afraid they've been so consumed with fear that something will happen to them. And it's controlling their lives. And how wonderful to see here. God seals these servants through the tribulation. That's some pretty risky times. But he's going to use them, we're going to see, to accomplish his purposes. These evangelists to spread the gospel. Who are these special servants used by God for gospel ministry in the tribulation? Well, verse 4, as we read down through verse 8, described very clearly. He says, I heard the number of those, verse 4, who were sealed, it was 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel that were sealed. And because I'm merciful, I won't make you read through again. Verses 5 through 8 describe very clearly, methodically, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. And, and he mentions the tribes, clearly saying 12,000 from each tribe making up this set number, again, verse 4 tells us that there's a set number, 144,000. It also tells us in verse 4, if you notice, a specific identity. What's the specific identity? 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel that were being sealed here. This means these were people from the nation of Israel. These were Jewish men who were being sealed and set apart by God for gospel ministry during the tribulation to function as God's servants. Now, sadly, there are groups who have falsely tried to claim from this passage that this 144,000 represents them or their pseudo-Christian cult. The Jehovah's Witness tried this, and then when their membership exceeded 144,000, their theology fell apart. Look, the, the, the reality is this, folks. The people who are doing this, they simply need to read their Bibles. If God wanted to say something different, he clearly could have. Not to mention, I mean, it's almost as if, again, we, we forget that God has a plan, has always had a plan. Romans 9, 10, and 11 confirmed this all the more, specifically for his chosen people 
the nation of Israel. The church has not replaced Israel, a spiritual Israel. God has a set purpose for the nation of Israel specifically, his chosen people, the Jews, that he will orchestrate and he will accomplish and fulfill. And it's almost as if God knowing how humanity is, that we would try and twist this. Or God, it's almost as if I can't, again, I'm speculating here and I probably should, but I almost wonder if God goes, yeah, we should write down the whole list. I mean, he could have just said verse four, right? And you would have thought that was easier reading. We had to read that whole thing. But when you get to heaven, you can tell people, your church, we read it all. We read it all. But God could have easily just said verse four and then moved right on to verse nine. But you have to wonder if God, to some degree, knowing humanity, purposely gives us a very similar, what looks like, doesn't it? Like an Old Testament genealogy type listing of the numbers and the names of these men from these different tribes of Israel. It's almost as if God was trying to emphasize of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. It's almost as if he's trying to make sure it's incredibly evident. Now, you may notice as we look at this list together, there are some unique things, which I'll touch upon briefly so we don't bog down here, some unique things regarding the 12 tribes of Israel listed there. First of all, you notice in this list of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12,000 from each tribe that we find here a reference to the tribe of Levi. Typically, in Old Testament genealogy, when the tribes are referred to, Usually, the tribe of Levi, referenced there in verse 7, usually in Old Testament lists of the 12 tribes, normally you don't find the tribe of Levi in such lists. What's very interesting is, remember, the tribe of Levi was the tribe of what? The ministers who operated as God's chosen servants to accomplish God's works. What is this group of people going to be? God's chosen servants to accomplish ministry during the tribulation. We also have here referenced for us uh, in verse 8, the tribe of Joseph. Now, that's unique, again, but remember, from Joseph came forth Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh were somewhat adopted by their grandfather, Joseph. And when we think about Joseph as well, how was Joseph's life uniquely used? Well, Joseph was used to do what? Save many people in a unique way as the result of his position. Remember, he was used by God to bring about great salvation from his role there in Egypt. And again, what are these 12,000 from each tribe going to do? They're going to bring about a great salvation of many people during the time of tribulation. What is also unique is we find the absence here of a direct reference to both the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Ephraim. They're not mentioned there. Joseph's mentioned there. So, okay, we know out of him comes Ephraim. But people wonder, well, why is Dan and Ephraim omitted from the list? Well, scholars debate that potentially the direct omission of Dan and Ephraim was because those were the two tribes of Israel, remember, who were guilty of introducing idolatry into the nation in the Old Testament. So perhaps for that reason, we have them not referenced here. What we can be completely certain that is utterly clear is that these were 144,000 men from the nation of Israel. Jews, who God sets apart, who become born-again Christians, sold out for Jesus, and are used to evangelize. Chapter 14 gives us some further description. We'll see about this 144,000. There it says, I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the living creatures and the elders, that no one could learn except this 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Notice, they were saved, redeemed from being on the earth, the Bible tells us. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins, so they were moral. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were followers of Jesus. They were redeemed from among them, being the first fruits of God and the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Now, when I step back from this, it makes total sense to me. Think about this. As God recruits, if you could, if God recruits 
his last days evangelistic force, how wise of God to say, I know exactly who my last days evangelistic force are going to be, that he would utilize many souls being saved and then he would set them apart and seal them and protect them and empower them by his spirit and he would unleash on the earth during the time of that tribulation 144,000 Jewish Paul the Apostles. You think that'd be pretty effective? Again, think of this. The Jews have the Old Testament scriptures. The Jews understand certain things. With as, as If you have a Jew, typically a Messianic Jew, someone who gets saved out of Judaism and their Jewish culture, they are radically not only on fire for Jesus, but they are very effective being able to communicate about Christ from both Old and New Testament very, very sufficiently, like Paul the Apostle was. Remember how radically powerfully used Paul was when he got saved as a Jewish man. And think of the effectiveness. Well, now you've got 144,000 Paul the Apostles. Send them out. You want to talk about some powerful evangelism that would be going on. And again, the mighty power of God here that from eternity he already knows and has set apart these exact individuals. He knows who they are, the exact ones he's going to save, who he's going to seal and empower and use in this time. And God's power is always working through human history, folks, even to today for such a time as this. And it's a great description of God's mighty power orchestrating good purposes and to show that God's power is involved in everyday individuals' lives. God's power is at work in your life in an individual way. He's fully aware of your life, and he's fully engaged in your life. And the same mighty power of God that we see here doing all these other things was uniquely at work in the lives of people, and he's uniquely at work by his power in our life as well. And that's a great, great consolation. Now, verses 9 down through the remainder of the chapter appear to be kind of a description, an image of the fruit of the evangelistic efforts of this 144,000 Jews who were sent forth to evangelize during the time of the tribulation that lead many people to Christ. We saw them described back in chapter 6, and now we see these tribulation saints, people saved during the tribulation in the remainder of the chapter, particularly it says, verse 9, after these things I looked, John says, and then next I saw a great multitude, which no one could number, a massive crowd of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, this multitude of all nations, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So as John's vision carries on now, it's now turned to this great multitude, he describes, that he sees, notice, from all nationalities that have been saved during the tribulation. That's clearly told to us. We'll see in the verses ahead, as we already read, saved out of the tribulation and where are they at. Now John sees them worshiping around the throne of God in heaven there because they no doubt, after their rebellion to God, were saved out of the great tribulation period, and as a result of trusting in Christ, most of them lost their lives, and they now find themselves safely tucked away in heaven. Notice it says there in verse 9 that they're there, these tribulation saints, clothed with white robes, and we've seen that before. That speaks of being forgiven of sin, made righteous before God, total acceptance before God's presence, he sees them rejoicing, verse 9, it says they're there with palm branches in their hands, a representation that they're in a state of rejoicing and celebrating. And what are they crying out in verse 10, this large multitude of tribulation saints? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So notice, in total humility, free from all human pride, with complete correct thinking ability, they are now giving all the credit and glory for salvation to who? God. God's saying, they're, they're saying to God, salvation, everything that happened in salvation, it all belongs to you. 
God, you're the one who orchestrated it. You could have punished us, rejected us. You could have forsaken us. But God, in your love, you made a way for people to be forgiven and saved. You sent your son and let him suffer and be punished horribly in our place and then powerfully raised him from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and now he's there. And through him, salvation's available to humanity. And they're appreciating how God was the origin and the source of the even opportunity to be saved. And even more than that, that he deserves all the credit and the glory for every soul that gets saved. That salvation belongs to God. It's not, man, that person is really great with sharing the gospel. Boy, thank goodness for those 144,000 who told us about Jesus during the tribulation. Notice they're saying, God, thank you that you sealed and sent out that 144,000, and they were just messengers who told us the truth, and God, but our salvation, it's all your glory. It's, it's, you're the one that broke into our lives and saved us, and they're giving God properly all the credit and the glory for salvation, and again, Ephesians 2 in the New Testament tells us that God made us alive. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and we're saved by grace and through faith, and it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Aren't you glad that that's true of salvation and that despite what people may do at times to boast on the earth, when you get to heaven, no Christian will ever boast again. Nobody will be taking credit for their ministries. Nobody will be taking credit for anything. Everybody will be casting their crown at God's feet saying, Lord, you did it all. You did it all. And here they are celebrating that God had saved them in the midst of these things. Verse 11 says, and all the angels stood around the throne the elders, a picture of, again, the saints in glory, and the four living creatures, the angelic beings described, we saw earlier, they fell on their faces, the idea is in complete humility, prostrating themselves before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, amen. And you're going to say amen when you get there. You'll get a little more charismatic. I'm a closet Pentecostal, I confess out loud. I hold it back. Blessing and glory and honor or, and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So much like prior scenes we've already seen in Revelation 4 and 5, the angels, the redeemed saints, humbly in God's presence, prostrating themselves before God. You know, it's amazing how the power of God and when you have an experience with the presence of God the tremendous humbling effect it has upon a person's life. You know, when someone has a true encounter with God and God's presence and God's power, it will wipe away a ton of pride in your life because you will be broken and humbled. Here they are in glory and as they're in God's presence, it says they fell on their faces. And imagine the angels, the redeemed, eternity forever and ever and ever, people who've been in eternity they're still overwhelmed by the presence of God. He's so great, so incredible. They're still falling on their faces as a part of their worship. And notice the constant passion and enthusiasm coming from their voices there in verse 12, that even though, as we've seen, heavenly worship is very orderly, it's very unified, you don't have one person falling around or dancing around when everyone else is doing something else. So everybody's going, why are they doing that? That's not happening. In a unified way, everyone is either falling on their face together, raising their hands together, singing the same song. There's this unity. Why? Because in perfect worship, all the focus and the glory is on God. Nobody wants any glory to be on them. Nobody would contemplate wanting to draw attention to themselves. They want glory and focus to be on God. And in this unified way with passion now, they're expressing their thanks and their glory May it all be unto you, God. And one of the elders, John says, then turned and said, who are these arrayed in the white robes, these who are worshiping? And where did they come from? Where, how did they get here? And you know, John's smart. He's like you and I. He says, uh, you know. In other words, you've been in near heaven. You tell me. <laughs> I don't want to be wrong. You're in heaven. So this messenger said to him, these are the ones, notice, who've come out of the great tribulation washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So notice, clear the identity there. 
John was seeing, particularly in this part of his vision, tribulation saints. He says, these particular group of people you see worshiping right here, these are the ones who came out of that tribulation period down on the earth. They were saved, they lost their lives, and now they're here tucked away worshiping in heaven. And what a beautiful picture of the power of God to forgive sin. These tribulation saints there, they've washed their robes. The idea is they're filthy guilt-stained robes and made them clean and white in the blood of the lamb. Can you imagine? I mean, the Bible is very clear as it uses this picture of robes that we're all wearing guilty, stained, filthy garments by all the wrong, dumb, selfish things we've all done on this earth, right? And thank goodness the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, washes us, that God gives us the righteousness of Christ to robe us with an acceptable you know, conditioned before him through Jesus and our faith in him. But can you imagine the depth of guilt the tribulation saints would feel? I mean, they rejected Christ all through human history. They enter into the tribulation, and in the midst of everything that's going on, they're thinking, again, we deserve this. We mocked Christians. We made fun of the Bible. We lived like absolute selfish animals. I guess we deserve this. And then God, in the tribulation, mercifully saves some of them. And now they're in glory. And you want to talk about magnifying an appreciation for some pretty hefty-duty forgiveness? The depth of forgiveness, the magnitude of how much they felt forgiven of. And no wonder they're so appreciative that this degree of guilt has been removed from their lives through Jesus' blood and forgiveness. Look, let me just say to you today, by way of application, Please be very encouraged because no matter what you have done, there's forgiveness, complete and total. It does not matter the depth of guilt or depravity or how vile and disgusting and despicable of things you may have done in your life. I assure you of this, the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from that. You have to believe that, and you've got to receive it for yourself. God's provided it. It cost him a great deal. Believe it. Stop trying to deserve it. Believe it and receive it and know you're clean. And walk in that so that you don't live in a perpetual state of self-pity and victimization, trying to keep punishing yourself foolishly for what God already placed upon Jesus. You cannot atone for it. Receive the forgiveness for it. God forgave these tribulation saints in the worst of situations. It says, verse 15, therefore they are there before the throne of God to serve him day and night in his temple. The idea is perpetually, eternally, continually, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So here we see some of what they're enjoying. They're enjoying the presence of God. Imagine fully being there at the throne, seeing all the glory and the brilliance. We saw it in chapters four and five, firsthand experiencing all that, but more than that, seeing God the Father and Jesus face to face, getting to serve God continuously, being there constantly in his presence with no interruption, no end to a church service, just perpetually there at the throne of God, enjoying God's presence constantly. Verse 16 says, And they neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, nor shall the sun strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away tears, or excuse me, every tear from their eyes. So verse 16 describes how these saints there now they've been noticed, finally released from what? Every form of human struggle and suffering and hardship. That's what verse 16 is depicting, hunger and thirst anymore. Why? Well, remember, Revelation 13 says that those who don't worship and serve the Antichrist and take his mark are going to be hindered from being able to buy and sell, which means to accrue food and drink to sustain themselves for survival on the earth during the tribulation. So these particular saints went through normal struggles of life, but then they went through severe, severe struggles, but now where they're at in glory 
what part of the glorious experience is they no longer are subject to any difficulty, any struggle, any lack, any hardship. How wonderful. After having lived on the earth, and some of us go through much harder things than others, to one day be in glory and to be released from every human struggle, every human hardship, every difficult thing you had to persevere through, they're now set free from it. And where are they at, verse 17? They're under the total and complete care and leadership of Jesus, verse 17 says, the Lamb of God. They're shepherding them and leading them and guiding them. It describes him leading them to the living fountains of waters. Again, Jeremiah tells us that the fountain of living waters, God refers that statement to himself, that he is the fountain of living waters. And whenever we see these terms, living waters, it speaks of the fullness of the Spirit's ministry, satisfying the inward thirst and the longing of every human being. And so this depicts there as they're in the presence of God enjoying complete satisfaction and fulfillment under the care of Jesus. Notice, when they're under the care of Jesus completely, they're getting really well taken care of. When Jesus is the one leading and caring for his flock, they get taken care of really well. They're getting blessed and enjoying this full satisfaction. Psalm 17 says, I shall see your face in righteousness and shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now, if that were not enough, the final phrase of verse 17, look at it. It says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Tears stem from what? Pain. That's what tears stem from, pain. Physical pain, emotional pain. But tears are the end result of human pain. And notice here, this speaks of God removing all forms of, of prior human pain that everyone experienced on the earth. Imagine that. Every single form, physical, emotional, of human pain, God eradicates it as a part of the blessing of being in his glorious presence. And if that were not amazing enough, if we contemplate the image, it says God will wipe away every tear. God wipes away the pain the most powerful one in heaven, almighty God, the power of God's hand. And yet he's the one compassionately wiping away tears. Picture the mighty hand of God wiping away a human tear from someone's eye. Comforting. Man, I don't know about you. Why in the world would somebody want to go to hell? Why would you not want to go to glory? Glory. 